0: He valiantly battled cancer for more than 15 years. Now, just after the death of owner-trainer Barry Abrams, the last gem he uncovered has a chance to shine brightly at the Breeders' Cup. We'll talk with the co-owner of Mo Forza. Plus, Happy Saber's surprising win in the Jockey Club Gold Cup calls to mind an amazing story of cunning, seduction, and one of the most iconic brand names in all the world. We'll have all of that on this edition of In The Gate. They're about to move in. they roll And they're off.
1: As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit by Bigfoot.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And we would just love it if you would contact the astrophysicists at America's Best Racing to let them know that In the Gate belongs in their nominees for Best Podcast in this year's Fan Choice Awards. Try the Twitter handle at ABR Live or the America's Best Racing Facebook page. Let them know that In the Gate belongs. Barry Abrams, the trainer and owner, had been involved with Thoroughbreds almost as long as yours truly, Barry Abrams, has been working here at ESPN. I started in October of 1992. The owner and trainer transitioned from Standardbreds to Thoroughbreds in 1993. He trained the occasional graded stakes winner, including famous Digger, who won the Grade 1 Del Mar Oaks in 1997, an unusual suspect, who won the Grade 1 Hollywood Turf Cup back when there was still a Hollywood park. That was ten years ago. Abrams also conditioned Unusual Suspect's father, Unusual Heat, who was not a great runner, but turned out to be the all-time leading sire in California in terms of what his offspring earned on the track. Abrams bred one of Unusual Heat's great-grandchildren, a son of one of the country's current leading sires, Uncle Moe. That four year old Colt is Mo Forza.
1: Mo Forza still six lengths off the lead and getting pushed
0: along at this stage as the field turns for home. Blitzkrieg firing a big shot. Sharp Samurai is now coming. And on the outside, Mo Forza gathering momentum under extremely confident handling. Mo Forza shifting in as he strolls on by. Another outstanding performance from Mo Forza. That win at the beginning of October in the City of Hope Mile was Mo Forza's sixth win in his last seven starts. Five of those wins have come in graded stakes. And think about this, until last year, owner-trainer Barry Abrams had won 11 graded stakes total in his 27-year career. What makes this story so much more poignant is that Abrams, the first-generation immigrant from Minsk, Belarus, died on October 9th from throat cancer at age 66. He was diagnosed in 2004 and battled it valiantly for over 15 years. A surgery to remove half his voice box in 2005 and then a recurrence of the cancer and a second throat surgery in 2011. He left the training part to others in 2016, but continued on as an owner and a breeder. Mo Forza is trained by Peter Miller. A few days before the news broke of Barry Abrams' passing, we reached out to Mo Forza's co-owner, Onofrio Pecoraro, to talk about Abrams and the horse. That conversation follows now. I spoke with
2: Tim right after the City of Hope, what a race that was, and so I called him. We spoke for a few minutes. You know, I don't normally speak with him over the phone just because of the situation with his speaking. So we usually are texting each other. But I did call him and spoke for a couple of minutes. His wife, Diane, was there on the phone. And this horse, Mo Fort, is a a dream come true for me. And I know Barry and Diane have talked about this horse since birth. Okay. And I'm not kidding you when I say that. When I reached out to uh, Barry, was it May of 2016? just to see if he had any horses that I could be a partner with him on. He mentioned that he had this baby out of uncle Mo and, uh, we spoke for maybe a half hour via text and he allowed me to buy in 50% of the horse. And I just remember, you know, this horse is six weeks old. And he said, the deal would be, is if you come in to as a partner, we're going to raise them because his plan was to sell them in the, in the fall sale. And I said, of course, I says, uh, that's, we're, we're going to raise them. That's the plan. And, you know, I remember Diane calling me Barry's wife and how ecstatic she was that this horse was going to run and they weren't having to sell them. And when I say excited, she was excited. And so we chatted and of course, you know, the baby was still young and then, you know, watching him grow. He was up at the farm, the tailor made farm. And uh, they would send us some photos and updates about the horse. And, you know, they were raving about him when he was six months old, nine months old. They would send us a little report card with a photo of him. And and our intent originally was to run him in the derby. Uh, That was the intent. But unfortunately, he had a shin splint, you know, some young horses get him. And so we had to put him on the farm for six months. And and that kind of messed up his uh, path to the Derby. And uh, Brian Lynch was our trainer at the time. And I met Brian here in San Diego a few years ago during the Breeders' Cup 2017. And he talked highly about the horse. And then it was actually April of last year, Barry called me and he just said, you know, his gut told him the horse should be here on the West Coast. And I didn't hesitate because I've known Barry for a while. We've had a lot of horses together. And it's just been an unbelievable experience. You know, once for me, I've owned 20 some horses in my 11 years of ownership. And this is just a dream come true for myself. And I know for Barry and Diane, uh, it's once in a lifetime to have a horse do what it's done in a year. You know, we got five graded wins, one grade one, four grade twos. And, uh, that's in a short amount of time. When you think about this year, COVID-19. He's had three starts. And so it, it's been a great, great ride. And I know he's brought a lot of excitement to Barry and Diane. And we're always having a lot of gratitude to Barry and Diane for allowing me to be a partner with them in this horse. And, you know, it's just a, it's pretty much a dream come true for me.
0: Why did you reach out to Barry? What about him made you want to be partners with him? Well, you
2: know, I met Barry going back he uh was friends with my uncle's father-in-law right pete DeSalvo had a meat market down in the neighborhood and barry met him back in the 80s and would come down and you know i was a young kid back then but i would see him and he would come down probably once a week during the del mar meat grab a sandwich you know bs with pete and and i just remember meeting him and i said you know what one day i I didn't have any money back, back then and Said if one day I own horses, you know I would love to get a couple babies out of unusual heat, and you know at that point in time when I was growing up and knowing about the industry, I knew Barry and uh, Madeline Arbach had unusual heat, and so fast forward, I met Barry probably was in '96 '97. I reached out to a friend of mine, Vincenzo Laverso, who had horses with Barry and Madeline, and a good friend of mine. And reached out to him one day and was sitting at my buddy's bar having a couple of drinks. And I said, you know what? It's time. I'm ready to do this. And sure enough, Vincenzo set up a luncheon and he told me Barry and Diane were going to come down and meet him at his restaurant at Greystone. And I, I went down there and Barry brought down a, a list of five horses on a piece of paper. And he says, you're, you're more than welcome to buy 10%, 50%, whatever you're more comfortable with. And, uh, and so we were talking, and hey, you know what? I trusted Barry from the get go. I could tell he was an honest man, genuine. So I said, All right, I'll buy 25%. And I just remember a, a classic story. Was, this is before any of these horses that I had just bought into was even racing, right? And I'm downtown with my buddy, and he called me up, Barry. And this is Barry Abrams for you, okay? He calls me up. He goes, No, for you, we're going to claim this horse. 16,000, it's us, four buddies, four grand each, I'm like, okay, no problem, I trust them, you know, whatever you want to do, he ran the horse, two weeks later, the name of the horse is Too Much Heat, so the race goes off, we're in Del Mar, it's about 100 degrees, I'll never forget, it was a steaming humid day, and uh, the horse wins, and I'm jumping up and down, because that was my first uh, official first win, and We get in the winning circle, take the winning circle photo, and I see this person over there shaking his bottle, and this number comes out. You know, I'm excited, so I'm not really paying attention much. And and Terry looked at me and said, "Because an open trio, don't get too comfortable." But this is not normally how it works out. So we claimed the horse. We put him in a race two weeks later. He wins and gets claimed. (laughs) You know, so uh, it was pretty classic and. You know, Barry's uh been a good friend from for me, just as a friend, setting aside the horse racing business. He's just a genuine person, um, you know, honest. And, and I just remember when, when he was training all of the horses for me and other people that were invested in them, he would call me. And this is exactly, every time he called, first thing he would tell me is, Onofrio, everyone's flying in the barn. And, and it was important for him to say that, to assure me that there was nothing wrong. He was just calling for some other reason. But I just, you know, I always look back and thinking how he was as a trainer, and he would always tell me that, I know, real everyone's good in the barn. And, uh, and here we are with the horse, Mo Forza, multiple Greater Grace winner, and we're blessed. And I know it's been a lot of excitement for him and Diane and myself, and all their family and friends that have been along with this journey.
0: Anafrio Pecoraro joins us here on In the Gate. You were talking about Barry's personality, what kind of a guy he is. Uh, one of his fellow trainers, Richard Baltus, tells the story of returning to California from Louisiana around 2011 and needed a job. He ran into Abrams, and Barry simply asked, How much do you want to make? Even if he was Bob Baffert, that was a heck of a question to ask. How was he able to do that? Yeah. You
2: know, when uh, when Barry had taken off, I think he had taken off some six months of time, Richie Baltus came in and took over and, and ran his uh, barn until he came back uh, from his little leave of absence. And so I've known Richie for a while and, you know, he took care of Barry, whatever Barry needed at that time. You know, Barry's just a, an amazing individual. And, you know, if he, if he was still training uh, to today, I've told all my friends, he would be the person that I would allow to train my horses. I, I never had to question him. I never even uh, picked up the phone and say, well, why don't we do this? I always trusted him and his vision. And Mo Forts is an example of that. I mean, you tell me how many people that you know that could tell you a six-week-old baby is going to be a champion without any hesitation. See, remember this, when we settled the deal that day, he texts me, he says, "Anofrio, now that you're part owner, you're going to come up with the champion name. Okay, that's Barry Abrams for you. He didn't hesitate. So me and my buddy Tommy Corona were out one night and we were talking and I was telling about the horse and I said, well, you know, Barry wants us to give him a name. I got to think of a name and I'm throwing out names to Tommy and he said, well, let me, let me think about something. And so we were talking and probably the next day or two, Tommy called me up and said, Hey, what about Mo Forza? Now Forza in Italian means power, strength. So that's where the Forza comes into, right? And so... I said, I love it. I pass it on to Barry. Diane liked it. And, and Barry sent it over to the uh, people to approve it. And I just remember, I think it was probably when the horse was a year old. And here I am. You know, I've, I've never won a graded race, right? I've only won these maidens and small claiming races. And I just remember texting Barry saying, hey, when this horse comes to racing, I just hope I can win a a graded race, and he, he's like, you know, Anoprio, don't worry. You'll them win multiple graded races with this horse. I mean, this is a horse, okay, that was one years old. And I know our aspirations were to get him in the derby and that didn't work out, but if you look at back from September of 2019 to where he is today, there's not too many horses that could blow the field away in greater races the way Mo Forza has done. I mean the the photo from the Delmar Mile, there's not even a horse in the photo. He's by himself. Right? This this last race, the City of Hope. Pratt rides him, brings him in hand ridden. He didn't even touch him with the whip once. And and that's a special horse.
3: They're at the top of the stretch.
0: Mo Forza is right up to Kingley are head and head. Neptune storm is trying to get out of there. Succeed and surpasses. next. the length of the half back to Temple. A 16th of a mile to go. And Mo Forza has put away Kingley. And Mo Forza will win going away. That win came on Breeders' Cup Saturday, but on the undercard. Now you're in the big show. In the Breeders' Cup Mile, you might be facing not only a couple of Chad Brown horses, digital age and without parole, who won the St. James's Palace at Royal Ascot last year in the care of John Gosden, I know, because I was there, and there's an outside chance we'll even see English 2000 Guineas winner camico How do you think Mo Forza measures up to these superstars?
2: Well, I gotta tell you, I mean... Uh, there's all sorts of things that come into play. If you think about the Cutter Twilight Derby last year, you know, he he pulled a post-13, right? And this was on Monday. And Barry and I discussed it. He said, look, we're going to race him. We're not going to scratch him. We're going to go for it. I'm walking into Breeders' Cup morning. It's 9 o'clock. Barry texts me. He says, we got two scratches. I'll see you in the winning circle. Okay, 9 o'clock in the morning, Breeders' Cup. Barry text me that. He he had no doubt about this horse and he went off at eighteen to one, Barry. Okay, Rosario was on him that day. He had a ton of horse in him. And he won probably by a length and a half, maybe even two that
0: day. Why didn't you text me? I could have made a fortune. <laughs>
2: yeah, I know. That tells me, and I, I'll look at every single greater race that he's won, and I'm throwing out the Pegasus, but the five greater races he's won. I have no doubt that my horse, our horse, Mo Forza, could go up to any turf horse in that day. I don't care who they come from, if they're coming from England, Italy, Dubai, Mo Forza has a legitimate shot to win, no doubt. And and I'll tell you, you, you mentioned Chad Brown. Hollywood Derby Del Mar last November, I'm with my buddy Artie. It's Monday. He looks at me, he goes, I know for you, Chad Brown's bringing three horses out here. If you could beat them, you got a damn good horse. All right? And what happened that day? We beat them. I think Chad Brown's horse came in third, if I'm not mistaken, and fourth on that day. So I have no issue with our competition. Whoever it is, bring them on because I think our horse is, is ready to go. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that happen in this industry and we understand that there could be a bad post. There could be some bumping at the beginning of the start, but a press on him, We're going to be excited. Uh, God willing, we're going to be there here in less than a month and, you know, hope for the best. And, uh, he's so happy these days and came out of the race. Uh, The city of hope came out in good shape and we're just ready to go. And, Peter Miller and his barn have done an outstanding job preparing this horse, so I know they're all excited, too, for us.
0: What would a win in the Breeders' Cup mile mean to you? I mean, what else can I say? I'm just blessed that Barry and Diane allowed me to be a partner
2: with them, and I'm just enjoying the ride because it's not often that you get a horse uh, this caliber that could win the multiple graded races, and, and makes the competition look like, uh, they should be in a different race. So for me, it would be a, a dream come true. I know for Barry and Diane, it would be an exciting moment for them. And put the star on top of the cake for Barry. You know, he's been around this business for many years. He's trained many horses. He has lots of friends, family that are supporting him throughout all of these years of him battling the cancer. And he's the strongest individual I know because I know a lot of people would have given up. And Barry Abrams is not that man. He was going to do his best to enjoy himself, live his life. And every time you saw him at the track, he gave a smile. I saw him last December for the massive smile. That was the last time I saw him in person because of COVID this year, I, I've been... Uh, you know, haven't been able to visit him or see him at the track, but he was in good spirits the day of the Mathis mile. He uh, brought in the horse into the winning circle. I look at that photo every day on my wall, my house. And, uh, with his smile, it just makes me happy that he deserves it. I know Diane uh, deserves it. And I'm just on this journey with them, uh, as a friend, a partner, and, uh, and enjoying every moment of it and, and just realizing that I'm I'm blessed to be in this position and don't take anything for granted and just enjoy the ride because, you know, I can end up buying another hundred horses in my lifetime. I probably wouldn't find another Mo Forza.
0: We certainly wish you the best of luck in the Breeders' Cup and beyond. Onofrio Pecoraro, thank you so, so much for a few minutes, sir. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Take care. Jockey Club Gold Cup winner Happy Saber comes from one of the most well-known dynasties in business and in racing. It's a story that involves cunning, seduction, unspeakable violence, and one of the most iconic brand names in all the world. Don't go away. Welcome back to In The Gate. As you know, 2020 has been a most untraditional year. In horse racing, that means a summer and autumn Triple Crown, which allowed three-year-olds to race each other without worrying about their elders late into the season. But one three-year-old, who didn't even try any of the Triple Crown races, has thrust his name into the championship picture the old-fashioned way, by taking on his elders in the fall and beating them
1: and Tacitus will turn for home with the lead. Mystic Guide on the outside. Happy Sabre down at the rail. So it's three of them across the track, and here is Mystic Guide on the outside to poke ahead in front. Happy Saber's now coming on. It's gonna be between the two three-year-olds. Happy Sabre at the rail. Mystic Guide on the outside. Happy Sabre is in front, and Happy Sabre stays undefeated. He steps up, and he wins the Grade 1 Jockey Club Gold Cup.
0: Unlike so many of his peers, Happy Saver never went through a sales ring, never had a number sticker put on his hip, never had veterinarians studying his x-rays or nuclear scans to see if he'd make a good purchase. Happy Saver is a homebred from a family whose cunning, charm, and survival skills have resulted in two great empires of the last hundred years, one in business and one in racing. 1924, World War I. The war to end all wars had concluded in Europe five years earlier, and the Roaring Twenties were in full swing on both sides of the Atlantic. That year, a French couturier named Gabrielle Coco Chanel was working on developing a line of perfumes. Chanel was a budding dressmaker, a perfumer, and a milliner, but running a business wasn't her forte. She needed some help wider distribution. Through a connection to a large department store owner in town, Coco Chanel was introduced to brothers Pierre and Paul Wertheimer. The Wertheimers ran a perfume company of their own, Bourgeois. Chanel biographer Lisa Chaney takes up the story.
4: The Wertheimers had apparently a brief conversation in which uh, Chanel agreed that she would allow them to become her distributors.
0: She had been developing a series of perfumes, including Chanel No. 5, but she was more interested in fashion than perfume, or in running a business. Chanel biographer Hal Vaughn says that in 1924, in exchange for marketing and promoting Gabrielle Chanel's products, brothers Pierre and Paul Wertheimer initially wound up with 70% of most of her assets.
1: The relationship began on a perfectly even, good business basis. At that time, I don't think Chanel ever realized the potential of this business. Uh, These are early days. People weren't exploiting perfume and cosmetics in keeping with fashion. Chanel biographer Rhonda Garalick.
3: Let's not forget, this is a woman in an era where it was absolutely unheard of for a woman to have a company like this. It was unheard of even to work so by 1924 she was making great strides but she could never have imagined herself capable of launching a global corporation these men these brothers saw in her potential that when reflected back to her
4: was extremely enticing that was the beginning of the relationship but it was also the beginning of the problems
0: the perfume was the fifth of 10 sample fragrances presented to her by the perfumer commissioned by Chanel's lover, a Russian Grand Duke, hence the name Chanel No. 5. That perfume became the core of the business, one whose sales rose meteorically. Chanel biographer Hal Vaughn says that soon after the Wertheimer brothers went into business with Coco Chanel,
1: the fashionista had seller's remorse. As years went by, Chanel believed probably um, incorrectly, that she hadn't gotten what she should have gotten for the business and that it was only the clever Wertheimers who had somehow cheated her out of this. When World War
0: II broke out, Chanel saw a unique opportunity to try to reclaim her namesake brand using rules the Nazis put in place against Jews, like the Wertheimers. Lisa Cheney and Hal Vaughn pick up the story.
4: She was connected with trying to oust them from the border of Chanel using the ironization laws. This was partly in reaction to the fact that in 1934, they had had her, Chanel, thrown off the board. And so it, it was this constant tit for tat.
1: When the Nazis came to power, she uh, had a series of goals. And one of the singular goals was to get her perfume business back. And to do this, she worked with a, a man whose name was Dr. Kurt Blanc. He was a terrible man, he was one of the leading Nazis in Paris whose business was using the Aryan laws, Hitler's Aryan laws, to seize Jewish property. In
4: 1940, uh, Germany had occupied France and Paris was occupied by the Germans. And if you were Jewish, it became more and more difficult to do anything without license, and that was very much included people in the arts, so writers, actors, playwrights, artists, all those kinds of people.
0: Aryanization laws also dictated that Jews could not own property. It would be confiscated and given over to the Nazi government. That would include the Chanel brand.
4: Pierre Wertheimer was, uh, he was very handsome, but he was a very charming man, and apparently very calm, but, He was always, as was his brother, they were always determined that Chanel was not going to get the better of them.
0: Pierre and Paul Wertheimer were able to get out of Paris before the Nazi clampdown, and they moved to New York. But there was still the matter of their company, Chanel.
1: Hal Vaughan explains their plan. Uh, Essentially what the Wertheimers did was to sell their business to a non-Jew, an Aryan, Felix Amio was his name. He manufactured airplanes for the French army and eventually ended up by manufacturing airplanes for the German Luftwaffe. So he had a certain protection built in. And in fact, he used that. He used his major client, Hermann Goring, commander in chief of the German air force, the Luftwaffe, to stop Kurt Blanc from seizing this property. Kurt Blanc had to back off and Chanel was defeated.
0: Because Felix Amiot aided the German war effort, the Wertheimers held a great deal of leverage against him as they went to buy their company back. They basically arranged for a witness protection-like arrangement for Amiot, who could have been prosecuted on war crimes charges. Amiot sold the Chanel business back to Pierre and Paul Wertheimer, but the brothers were far from done with the company's namesake.
4: She was a wily old thing. And this disgusting law happened to be around, and so she was going to try and use it to her advantage. But the motivation did not come first of all from anti-Semitism. it came above all from her, her fury at what she regarded as a bad bargain. It became a kind of um, a litany really for her, for the large part of her life, until the latter part of her life, when they brought her out and looked after her actually.
1: The relationship was very, very rocky over all of these years, although there is some evidence that Paul Wertheimer was very, very, he was enchanted by Chanel, it is the least to say, if he wasn't in love with her. There's some evidence that he might have been in love with her.
0: Chanel biographer Rhonda Garlick suggests that Coco Chanel might not have really opposed the Wertheimer brothers at all.
3: Someone who knew Chanel back in the day suggested to me that in fact it was all a kind of play acting in which Chanel performed this desire to seize the control in order just to give credibility to the complicated maneuvers the their had achieved. I've had it suggested to me that in fact Chanel understood this was happening and her part was to seem outraged and ready to wrest control in order to make it all look good. I cannot tell you if that's true but it's a fascinating possibility.
0: Once again, Lisa Cheney.
4: After the war, in nineteen fifty-four, when Chanel, I call it the comeback, after she had given up her fashion house for 15 years, and she decided to come back. And all the rest of the Chanel company were very worried about this happening. And they strongly advised the Wertheimers not to become involved. Pierre actually went to see her, certainly once, perhaps on more than one occasion. And he was convinced that this was probably, on balance, a good thing. And so he told her that he would back her. This letter, Chanel wrote to Pierre in 1964, Pierre died in 1965. In this letter, she says, My dear Pierre, I was very touched by your personal letter. As you thought, all my desires are now fully gratified by the latest modification in our agreements, to which you allude. This was the Wertheimers buying Chanel out so that she could run her couture company. But they didn't buy her out in a bad way. They bought her out in such a way that she was actually looked after, and this is what she's referring to in this letter. I am persuaded that the future reserves for us both as much satisfaction as our collaboration has brought me till now. She is referring to the last 40 years of their relationship, this difficult relationship. But as I told you, from now on, I am depending above all on your moral support. I embrace you tenderly. I don't think anyone could write a letter like that 20 years after the war if their relationship had simply been an acrimonious one. As I said, it was a many-layered, nuanced relationship. And for me, that letter says it all, really.
0: They are called Wertheimer and Frere. Literally, Wertheimer and brother. When you're talking about Elaine and Gerard, it's not clear which is the main Wertheimer and which is the brother. But in reality, the outfit should be called Wertheimer at Family, since their reach in thoroughbred racing goes back to 1910. Pierre Wertheimer was first introduced to Gabrielle Chanel in 1922 at Longchamp Racecourse, the regular home of the Arc de Triomphe, Europe's biggest race. Chanel biographer Lisa Cheney says that their complicated relationship even extended into horse racing.
4: There's this very particular famous occasion where Pierre's horse won the Derby, which, of course, is in England. And he was very, very excited. And the first person he came to see when he got back to Paris was Chanel. And um, she was determinedly not going to compliment him and made out that she didn't know. And he said, surely you know. And she said, what? And he said, I've just won the Derby. Are you not pleased for me?
0: That Epsom Derby win in 1956 with Lavendon was the first of several classic wins for the Wertheimer family. Pierre's son Jacques swept the French 1,000 and 2,000 guineas and the French Derby in 1975. The next year, he won Europe's most prestigious race, the Arc de Triomphe, for the first time. Jacques won it again in 1981. As for the current Wertheimers, Elaine and Gerard, still the owners of the House of Chanel, their success started extending to this side of the Atlantic in 1993, when Kodashan won the Breeders' Cup turf over a strong field en route to Horse of the Year honors. The Wertheimers won a second Breeders' Cup race ten years later, the Juvenile Fillies in 2003, with Half-bridled, but it was an older female that has forever stamped the brothers in the annals of American racing.
2: Sydney's Candy gets a tap on the
1: shoulder, goes on for home. Now Golda unwinding her right in the center of the track. Golda Kova's left Lucy's line. Sydney's Candy, the usual QT's in there as well. But
2: Golda catching with each and every stride. Are oh, we to see history this afternoon? here's
1: Paco Boy late. But no, Golda a true champion, three Breeders' Cup wins, Olivia Pellier, the perfect ride, Golda Kova has won.
0: She is the only horse to win the same Breeders' Cup race three years in a row, the mile. And with all due respect to Margaret Thatcher, Golda Kova is the iron lady of the turf. She beat Colts and Geldings nine times among her 17 career wins. Even though she raced in this country just four times, Golda Kovar was inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame in Saratoga in 2017.
1: And Happy Saver and Trevor McCarthy ask for a full run on the outside. They try to get by Monday morning quarterback who turns her home with a narrow lead against the rail. But Happy Saver on the outside responding in a head-to-head battle now. Happy Saver, Monday morning quarterback down to the inside with a furlong left to go. They're well clear of the others. Here's Happy Saver. Happy Saver getting the job done, pulling away by two lengths with a 16th left to go. It's Happy Saver in the Federico Tessio. Now running alongside Happy
0: Saver, as for all of the Bertheimers horses, is the legacy of a family of shrewd and dedicated horsemen, savvy and street-smart businessmen who outsmarted a despotic empire. And if you looked closely enough, perhaps also running alongside Happy Saver was the fashion legend herself, whose complicated relationships and business dealings fueled one of the iconic brand names in all the world. And though so few spectators have been allowed to witness racing in person this year, maybe, just maybe, there was a lady in attendance watching Happy Saver Run who was wearing Chanel number 5. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really would help others find us and might even land us in the Best Podcast category in the Fan Choice Awards this November for America's Best Racing. Wouldn't that be nice? You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope this finds you safe and healthy as you listen to this show, and we'll see you next time.